It's Dr. Stu's podcast again with me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and my protege, Bliss Young. Uh, we are back for podcast numbers one, two, five. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstuespodcast.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can email me at askdrstu at gmail.com. Uh, you can email Bliss at birthingbliss.com with go. a Y. Yeah. So anyway, this is podcast number 125. It's been a while since we've been together. Yeah. And uh, every every time when we have a podcast, I have this like anxious, nervous, exciting energy. Getting uh, prepared for it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I never know like if we're going to run out of things to talk about, which we never do. No. Or <laughs> <laughs> or or what's going to be interesting to the to the listening audience and that also and I also want to tell people who are listening that, you know, when I do this stuff, um we may change the format down the road, but right now I don't tell Bliss anything that we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so we could get spontaneity when it comes. So I, I sort of go through topics. I go through my emails. Um, oh, askdrstu at gmail.com again because I love getting emails. I got several of them this past week on some of the previous podcasts. Um, yeah, and we'd we, love to hear questions, what people want to hear about too. It would be great. Yeah, and sort of like some of my time I bring them up in topics. Or they, Some people send me articles and ask me what they think about that. Mm-hmm. My... Uh, my uh, partner in crime, Renee, who does most of my posting and stuff like that. She always sends me stuff. Hi, Renee. We'll, we'll be going through some of those things ourselves today. <laughs> uh, anyway, so how have you been? Because it's been about a month since we've been together. What's going on? Uh, just kids and midwifery and life. And how was Hawaii? Hawaii was great. Yeah? It's great. Thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I went to Hawaii for those of people who don't I know. I went I to Hawaii uh, a few weeks ago. I want to uh, give a thank you to Amy and the Go Midwife team. Uh, I won't name everybody because I'm sure I'll leave somebody out. But uh, on our Facebook page, the Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN Facebook page, there's a lot of great pictures and stuff. We did a course, a two-day course on breach training uh, with about each day had about three to four hours of lecture and about three to four hours of hands-on training with Sophie and her mom. I think it was a really big success. There were a lot of emotional stories that came out. Um, one of them, without being specific, was that somebody had experienced uh, a not knowing what to do situation when she was in training and uh, ended up with a tragic outcome. And we went through that. We were able to simulate the things that happened. And I'm very certain that because of the simulations and things that we taught uh, at this conference, that that all of these midwife students were going to know what to do mm-hmm. should one of these things, adverse things happen, like a foot pop out or a baby be a second twin needing to be uh, delivered, or just a breach in general. Now in Hawaii, uh, I think they can still do breaches. A lot of states, you know, uh, are you know, it's not legal for midwives to do breaches. Which of course, here on Doctor Stu's podcast, we don't mince words. It's a very stupid uh, <laughs> thing to have. Uh, if a woman or a, a woman wants to have a breach birth, and there's a capable practitioner who's comfortable doing them. The idea that the people in, in state legislatures and, and academia should determine what that woman's choices should be is, a, is an offense to me. Yes. And to you. W- very much so. And and when is the next time you're doing one of these workshops? And well, where? let's see. What's coming up next is on March 7th here in Los Angeles at the Good Life Academy, we're doing a screening of Why Not Home. It's a documentary uh I think it's about five healthcare workers in Oregon who worked at a labor and delivery unit or a hospital who decided to have their babies at home. Uh, 
the what dire- time? the director of the film will be there along with me and Dr. Uh, Emiliano Chavira mm-hmm. and a couple other moms who uh, are going to come and give their story from their birthing instincts family's moms. Great. We're going to be there. Uh, it's at seven o'clock. Okay. And it's at the uh, Good Life Academy. It's in the Valley, someplace. You people can look it up. And again, it's also posted on the Facebook page. I'll have. Uh, Renee, link it to on the, your Facebook page. Yep, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Renee, link it to the podcast page as well. Okay, and they can find it on uh, uh, birthinginstincts.com, which is my website, on the calendar page because it'll be posted there as well. Uh, after that, I have uh, nothing in April, but May is an exciting month because I'll be teaching the breach class in two different cities in Portugal. Amazing. So that's the start of something big. I hope. And do we have podcast listeners in Portugal? Yes, we do. Awesome. I know one. Spread the word. <laughs> I, know, I know Sarah's listening. So. Okay, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Your job to spread Uh-oh, the word Bella got Portugal. Tangled, Bella got tangled up in your cord there. <laughs> well, I did miss you when you were in Hawaii. You know, I was I was blowing up your phone at all hours of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we had a shared client. Yeah, but was, she labored while I was flying home, right? I mean, she delivered. Yeah. Um. She, she you know, but I'm telling the audience, this particular client um, decided to hire both Stu and I. Um, Stu on the couch package, just in case she needed him. And, um, and then she ended up coming up against our law here in California, which is that she cannot deliver with a midwife beyond 42 weeks. Um, Actually, it's 41 and six-sevenths weeks, because at 42 weeks at midnight... There you go. You, yeah, you can't deliver it, because that just came up this week. I have a new... Oh, it did? Yeah, I have a new client now that just came on to my practice, because 42 weeks was last night at at midnight. Mm -hmm. So, another silly thing, which we're going to... By the way, in podcast 126, we're going to be talking all about 42 weeks. Great. The whole podcast. Great. So, anyways, uh, you know, Emiliano, Dr. Shavira, was covering for you, but his... uh, his openings were a little bit sporadic because he was covering for another one of your deliveries too, a breach delivery. So it was kind of a touch and go what was going to happen with this mama. And, um, you know, one of those, another one of those times when I just felt so frustrated with this law because she really got to the point where she was like, I'm just going to, I just won't call you. I'll just deliver in the backyard. (laughs) And her poor husband was like, uh, I think we need the doctor and bliss here. And she was like, nope, it's going to be fine. <laughs> so obviously everything turned out and we had the doctor and myself there. It was a beautiful delivery. Would you say as you were flying home? Yeah, she, she delivered while I was on the plane. Yeah, right. yeah. so you just missed it. Yeah, but, but it, I wasn't necessary other than for essentially not. the confidence of the father and then because of the 42-week rule. I mean, we love you, but yeah, yeah she she didn't even really need me. No, she didn't. No. no. And I kept telling her that. And by the way, they have a lovely backyard. They have <laughs> so a lovely house. They could house. have delivered in the backyard. It would have been a really nice birth. <laughs> totally. It was a beautiful delivery. Yeah. And I'm really grateful to have uh, Dr. Chavira available when he's available. Of course, mm-hmm. he's still got too many irons on the fire and he's uh, pulled in too many directions. But we're working on him. Yeah, me too. If he's listening, uh, just, you know, wise up. <laughs> I okay. spoke to him on the phone um, the other day and he had uh, me on speakerphone with his wife and his children in the car. And um, this particular client of mine is going to deliver in the hospital, but she's going to be delivering with Dr. Shavira, but she's doing, you know, care with another doctor. And um, and Anna, his wife said, just want to know, like, why does she want to go to that hospital? And I said, because of your husband, because yeah. <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah. I've done a few deliveries with him down at St. Francis, and it's just been 
I mean, as close to my home birth clients could have gotten with a doctor in a Yeah, hospital. let me explain something about St. Francis. It's not that that hospital is a bad hospital. It's just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's kind of known as a bad part of town. Right. So, like, my clients, when they transferred from where they live in, like, near Redondo Beach to this to this hospital, her family was like, why are you going to Linwood, right. you know? Um, and I said, you'll know. You'll understand. Yeah, I just, did, I just want, didn't want your words to be misinterpreted that yeah. there's something wrong with the hospital. No, no, no. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, so that's uh, what's coming up on the calendar, and we're going to try to... Uh, uh, keep you updated. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming up. We're getting, we, we got a request to go to Indonesia to uh, teach breech birth. We? I'm coming? You can come. All right. You, want. you just, you can be the pusher. <laughs> okay. Because when I do with the, when I work with Sophie and her mom, I need a, I need a pusher. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody to push, because I was doing both in Hawaii. Uh, and I realized after that, that it, that I can't be at the other end and be teaching as much when I'm pushing. You need a vanna. <laughs> Vanna White. <laughs> yeah. I'll be your Vanna White. Yeah, you got more muscles than Vanna White. Um, the other thing about Hawaii that I wanted to mention is I have a midwife who's starting a practice out there and she is going to be like t- speaking or something, has an engagement already for the month of October. And she said, Will you come and cover me? And I was like, Yes. I'll totally come to Hawaii, to, but I can't yet because I haven't, I can't be a preceptor quite yet. It has to be three years. So, more rules. I know more let's, rules. Let's more rules to break. But in my future, I will be covering in Hawaii. So anyway, I just wanted to get vent on one little thing before I get into a couple of the topics we're going to talk about today. Uh, you know, I do a lot of breach consults, as you know. I see people for second opinions regarding uh, breach toward the end of their pregnancy when things are supposed to be quiet and nesting and relaxing, and they're all of a sudden they're scrambling because. You know, not only are they breached, but they're also thinking of the possibility of changing from a hospital birth to a home birth. And it's a very big leap for a lot of people to do that. Yeah. And I was um, speaking to a woman the other day who's seeing an um, uh, OBGYN here in Southern California who I happen to know. And uh, she was telling me some of the things that he says to her. And this is just, this is what gets me really sort of riled up because I know that this person knows how to do breach deliveries Mm. because he trained in the same era that I trained in and I know that but I know that he doesn't do them because of either the rules to hospital or or just uh, the herd mentality or just his group's decision or whatever but he was saying things like to her that that um, you know she had tried a version but the version was unsuccessful and then I saw her and he did an ultrasound on her and the baby was met all the criteria for a safe attempted vaginal breech birth, plus she's a multiparous. So in my experience, multiparous women have a success rate close to 100% with home breech birth. Your uh, personal experience from your practice. Personal experience. Mm-hmm. It obviously doesn't reach statistical significance. Mm-hmm. But this will be when, uh, when our paper, which is still <laughs> waiting to be published, uh, it's still in peer review process with a, uh, a biomedical journal. Um, but eventually when that comes out, people will be able to read this sort of thing. I can't wait to do that podcast because I've been waiting for so long. Anyway, um, so I knew that that baby was normal size, the head was flexed, that the feet were where they belong and stuff like that. And so then she called me after she saw him a few days later and she says that, that he told her that the baby's stomach is a bit small. All right. So I looked at my Williams obstetrics textbook for the definition of a bit small. <laughs> I couldn't find one, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there isn't one for a bit small. And by the way, it was in the 35th percentile when I saw her f- like five days earlier. I hear this a lot lately, by the way. This is a common one. Well, this is, a, this is the process of grooming somebody 
to funnel them down the path you want them to take. Because there was also the, the classic one, which was that the fluid was... Low. A little low. Uh-huh. Okay. A bit so, small so and a, a little small low. A bit small and a little low. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, if you're a confident practitioner, you say the baby's abdomen is normal and the fluid is normal. Right. All right. If you want to make the either ease your own anxiety or make the woman more concerned, you say it's a bit small right. and a little low. Right. Okay. And then he said that he lightly, then she, in her words, she, she, she said he lightly implied, quote, my placenta could be having an issue, unquote. All right. This woman was 36 weeks and five days at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. The baby was perfectly grown, appropriately grown. And yet these are three things that were implanted in her at that time, enough that this doctor, who's quite capable, was going to send her the following Monday, which was, was, this was a Thursday, so the following Monday, to see a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Okay? Now, if you're concerned enough that there's a problem with the baby on a Thursday, you, just, you wouldn't probably wait till Monday to have her be seen by somebody else. So I, I, you know, I just get the, the sense that this is how a lot of doctors practice, it drives me crazy because, because are, are they really thinking about what their words are doing to the psyche of the woman? N- not in the negative sense, I don't think so. I think they think about planting a seed or preparing her for what they feel is the direction that things should be going in. Yeah. But I don't think that they think about the negative implications. Yeah. And I've been saying that for a while, too, about like... In the hospital, you know, we talk about the mammalian um, uh, model. Is that what you say? But um, how our hormones so greatly influence how labor progresses. And when I'm assisting women in the hospital, I'm just amazed that it's not part of how they consider how they're approaching women during the labor process with this information that could be quite scary, you know, and how that could negatively affect her labor. It's not, it's not included at all. It's not even taught. Yeah. The whole idea that anxiety, I mean, it common sense would dictate that, you know, a mammal doesn't labor well when they're anxious or afraid. Uh, yet we constantly are telling them things or setting up an environment to make them <laughs> anxious or afraid. And then wondering why their well, labor is dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional, right. Right. Okay. Anyway, I had to vent about that because, because, because I see so many breach con- uh, consults, this is a very common occurrence. And this just happened to be somebody that I, the physician that I knew and respect, and I know that he's a very talented physician, and yet, granted, I'm getting, hears- I'm getting hearsay, I'm only hearing it from the mom, the mom mm-hmm. but that's what the important part because no matter what he said, this is what she heard. Yeah, and how she feels. And how she feels about it. Right. So, um, you know, I have this other thing. Again, I guess we're on a little bit of a rant right now. I think today's podcast is going to be a little bit more ranty than anything else. I wanted to talk about (laughs) um, my pet peeve about uh, research by press release. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, big headline on on, uh, the the internet that I found the other day that was sent to me by somebody. It says... um, Quote, C-sections not more likely in induced births, new research shows. Okay. So, we all know that we've all believed for a really long time that, that when you induce labor for no reason, you have a higher rate of cesarean section. Mm-hmm. But there's been a push now by the American College of OBGYN, including uh, a famous non-debate debate a year, a year ago at ACOG, where two guys both decided that 
inducing everyone at 39 weeks would be a good idea. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so there, there, it seems like what's happening is there are articles coming out. They, they have an idea of what they want, and then they publish articles about that to support the idea what they want, as opposed to the other way around, where research is supposed to lead wherever the research leads. Mm -hmm. And what's really annoying about this one is that the it's the it's the attitude of the physician who who's very clear. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote read some of her quotes. So I I respect what she has to say, but it seems like there's one article that came out one one paper, and the acceptance of it by this headline, which is what will come, which what, when people do a, a search, this will come up right. of a single study. Um, really su supporting what they want to hear, and suddenly this is this is good news. If the study came out showing that C-sections were higher in people that were induced, you and I probably wouldn't have heard about it. Right. All right. So this is sort of like the term breach trial, where one paper came out supporting a model of care by which people wanted to practice, and suddenly it becomes a really good idea. Now that's not what the the uh, person that's interviewed in this article says, but let me let me read on. Where okay, she says that. Um, this was taken. This took place at about forty in, uh, hospitals in around the country. About six thousand patients were included in the study. That's a fairly decent number, all right. And they were randomized at thirty-nine weeks to either induction or waiting for labor. Now, again, there's lots of problems in in that in the methodology when you randomize people who may not want to be in the category that they've been picked put in. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's very hard to control for that. And it's, and it's very hard in, in the methodologies, uh, uh, um, these, the methodology that's used to determine whether or not um, you can compare apples to apples or apples to oranges. So I always question the sort of the methodology. But basically, she said that uh, for every thousand women who were induced, 186 of them had C-section rates, a uh, C-section, excuse me for an 18.6% C-section rate, mm -hmm. okay? Wait a minute, is that right? I don't know. 180, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. Yes, okay. Thought you were reading it. Yeah, no, no, mm -hmm. no, no, I make it, I, I do math in my head. You do. Yes, I do. And then you look at me and I... <laughs> <laughs> I see a blank, a blank slate. <laughs> no math in midwifery. Yeah, I see fear. <laughs> and then the group assigned to the usual care of just waiting had a C-section rate of... 222 out of 1,000, or 22.2%. So it was about 3.5% uh, higher in the people who waited for labor. All right? So they said that's a difference of 36 women, and, and that's, she says that's statistically significant. The problem, of course, is that's not what other studies have shown. Mm -hmm. So do we, do we put a lot of credence in, th in something where one, one study comes out and says that inducing women at 39 weeks and again, you're taking that one isolated thing in a vacuum, all right? They're, they're not looking at the other consequences of being induced at 39 weeks. What, how, what's the effect on the long-term effect on a baby? What's the long-term effect on the mother? Um, what's the psychological effect on mother and baby? Those sorts of things are never really taken into account. Right. It's very hard to control. And she says, um, she says, if the science bore out that induction was associated with an increased C-section rate, I'd be on the bandwagon, but it doesn't, okay? And she said, I didn't know what to think when we were going into this study. I was equally open to either option, although my natural bias was that induction is associated with an increased risk, because that's, that's what previous studies have all shown. Um, what, I, what bothers me about this sort of thing 
is that you're looking at one study. I couldn't find the study. Um, I, I tried to find out the paper that it was. It, the, this, this news report, press release, mm-hmm. doesn't really give a link to the study, and it doesn't really give links to other studies. It just summarizes what the reporter asks the chief researcher for one of the hospitals in the study. That's not great that they don't have the... No, and then he says at 39 weeks, people were selected by computer for indu- inducement. Um, that's how it works. So they were just random randomized, which is, you know, that's good science. Problem is you're dealing with humans and you're dealing with different c- scenarios. And it, 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 I don't know what the controls were and I don't know. And they always said that you know there's higher morbidity and higher preeclampsia rates and higher other things in, in when you when in the obser- observational group, which of course would be true simply because they're going they're pregnant longer. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, she says that the there were lower rates of complications like preeclampsia and gestational hypertension among the women who were induced, which is not surprising. Um, she says the research still needs to be vetted through the peer review process. So that's really interesting that it's published. It's published, or at least they're sending out a press release, but it hasn't been vetted through the peer review process. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, so this is one of those things that just upsets me because this is the kind of stuff that gets put on social media. Mm-hmm. People put links to it, put it on Facebook. Everybody reads it and then says induction isn't so bad. And then your mother gets it, and your mother says to your daughter, "Who wants to wait for labor to start naturally?" Well, I just read and. This study out of South Carolina where they, they found that there was lower risks of problems if you, you get induced at 39 weeks. Right. I mean, does anybody with common sense think that nature designed something that we should intervene with everyone at 39 weeks? Somehow this 39-week thing is this new, uh, you know, is the new normal. I do think that the majority of the population believes that science is better than nature. Yeah, but there's lots of science that says induction isn't good for you. Yeah, but so you asked. Just cherry picking you their said science. common sense. You know, does common sense really believe? And I and I I do. I'm dumbfounded sometimes when I bring up that conversation because I have so much faith in nature um, that a lot of people really do. You know, well, people die in childbirth, and people have been. Di- I'm like, yeah, but if more people died than not died before we had all of this medicine, then we wouldn't have survived as a species. So obviously, we've done our nature does a lot right. Yeah, and also people die because of science too. <laughs> yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know. I just it's just one of those things that that crossed my desk probably on a day when I was not in a good mood, <laughs> and I looked at it and I go, well. So anyway, they asked the, they, they asked the author. I mean, not the author. They asked the interview person, the interview doctor from South Carolina. She says she's not considering any changes in her to current recommendations at this time. There is no one perfect option, and there are competing values for every family in my office, which I like when she says something like mm-hmm. that. That's why I think she's quite reasonable. And she says, does this open the door to induction of labor for low-risk moms at 39 weeks? Absolutely. Would I push that as a recommended standard of care? I'm not there yet. Any obstetri- An obstetrician would say they want their patient to go into spontaneous labor, but if they haven't at 39 weeks, and if this research is deemed to be very good science... And each patient has to weigh what's important to her. Why can't they just wait till they've deemed it good science before they put it out in the public? <laughs> yeah, I, I think. Right. Uh, yeah, that's the, yeah, that's <laughs> a good that question. One. You can just that that's could be rhetorical. The, going going into the round file, that one. Okay. Maybe there should be a sound effect when you throw them in the in the trash. 
Yeah, we'll have to. We'll, <laughs> I'm gonna have to talk to John, make him earn his keep. Well, a little sound up. effect. Yeah, like. <laughs> whoosh, whoosh. Uh, okay, so you have one that you want to talk about a little bit, which is more of a positive one, well, uh, somewhat, because, and not necessarily that positive. You were actually. talking about um, when people do studies, and I recently posted this on Facebook and said, "Everybody loves a study, right?" Um, so this study was done, um, and the title of the article is a larger role for midwives could improve deficient U.S. care for mothers and babies. So basically this study looked at the states um, in which midwifery was most restricted and that it correlated with bad outcomes for moms and babies. So they went deeper into that to look at how if we integrated midwifery care more, which we always talk about um, and did more collaborative care like they do in other countries that um, we could actually improve healthcare here in the States and across the world. I think it said something about 80% in 2014. Where's that, that one? It says in 2014, they decided that 80% of all maternal um, deaths could be improved if we included midwifery care. <laughs> it's an interesting way to put it, though. How do you improve on a death? Yeah. You, like not, not dying? <laughs> I guess, <laughs> I guess that would be a way to improve on it. Yes. You know, uh, I, again, and I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want anybody to listening to say, well, look, at, they were just criticizing the, that's what the I was previous saying. article, mm-hmm. and now we're, now we're accepting this article. We're not accepting this article, and we weren't criticizing the other article as much as we were criticizing that it was already written before it's been peer-reviewed and that sort of thing. So in this midwifery one, though, it really just ex- it expresses what, again, what common sense would tell you. Which is? That if most pregnant women are not sick and not ill, and, mm-hmm. mid- and, mid- and midwives are trained to deal with normal far better than OBs are trained to deal with normal. And, if that, and again, that may not be a given for many people. It's probably a given for most people listening to Dr. Stu's podcast because we have a selective audience who, who listens. People who should be listening aren't listening. So... If you're not listening, you should be listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that they were talking about specifically is that there are less um, hospitals that have um, maternity care in rural areas. And so these people are traveling very far distances yeah. to get to these hospitals that can actually care for them, where midwives could be the ones that could go into the homes in these rural areas and be able to support them. So that was a big part of it. Like, you know, Alabama is one of the worst in terms of restrictions for midwives yep. and, and has horrible. Um, yeah. And, and there's statistics. like, there was some crazy number in there and I don't remember it cause I just glanced at it, but mm-hmm. some crazy number in the number of counties in um, the country that don't have obstetrical care. And it was some crazily high number. Yeah. And you know, most doctors are concentrated in, in urban areas. And so, uh, but midwives would be happy to do, you know, two, three births a month in some rural area, but they're not allowed to do so. Yes. And when you look at England, as they talk about in the very first paragraph of that, it says in Great Britain, midwives deliver half of all babies, including Kate Middleton's first two children, <laughs> Prince George and Princess Charlotte. In Sweden, Norway, and France, midwives oversee most expectant and new mothers, enabling obstetricians to concentrate on high-risk births. What a common sense idea. Right. What a great idea. Right. You know, the collaboration that we've always talked about and the smooth transition from midwife to OB, uh, working together as a team in support of a woman and her the, uh, and her autonomy in an ability to make decisions that affect her body would be great. But we still have 
the, this old, and I hate to use the word paternalistic uh, mentality in the United States that, that medicine knows best and any decision made regarding maternal health care has to involve the American College of OBGYN and it's a lot of it's stuffed shirts um, who think that women are guinea pigs to be induced at 39 weeks <laughs> and that sort of thing and think that that's, that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like to see this become a reality because I, I do believe that, that especially in the, in the rural areas and the counties where there, there aren't, and even in the cities, I mean, it would be great if, if hospitals, first of all, it would, it, it would lower intervention rates. It's known to do that, just like doulas do. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would lower the C-section rates, which maybe not be a good thing for hospitals because hospitals are, you know, live on a financial model. But there's so many good things that would happen, even in urban areas, if midwives could have privileges at hospitals and work within the boundaries and, work, and be on the committees that make some of the rules, right, so that some of the things that many hospitals still do, like making women deliver on their back or prepping their vulvas with iodine or cutting the cord rather quickly or putting the baby in the warmer instead of on the mother's chest or immediately you know, giving the baby hepatitis vaccine and other things that are really not necessary and babies going to the nursery. Uh, those old-fashioned things don't necessarily need to be done unless there's an ca- indication for them to be done. Right. But a lot of places it's just done routinely. All the time. Um, one of the other things they talked about in this article, which we've we've touched on a little bit on the show before, is the disparity. Um, and it talks about uh, many of the states characterized by poor health outcomes and hostility to midwives also have large African-American populations, raising the possibility that greater use of midwives could reduce racial disparities in maternity care. African-American mothers are three to four times more likely to die in pregnancy or childbirth than their white counterparts. Black babies are 49% more likely to be born prematurely and twice as likely to perish in their f- before their first birthdays. You know, and we've, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but just to read those statistics are just, it's pretty astounding that there's such a large disparity and and this study in general that they looked at um, midwifery care could make a huge difference in these areas and neither one of us probably has any idea what the uh, whether the organized medicine is doing anything to help alleviate that situation do we no, I mean, not, I think this is why. There's a lot of lip service paid to it. There's a lot, lot of virtue of... signaling. There's a lot of talk about it. Mm-hmm. It comes up at meetings, at the ACOG meetings and at midwife meetings. It comes up all the time. But I'm not sure that there's a large investment into fixing that problem. Well, remember we talked about at the midwifery conference, that was one of the big topics that came up. You know, the anger from um, African-American midwives that just saying the leadership in this particular organization had been white for so long and we hadn't really addressed this to the degree that they felt comfortable with it. It was a it was time for a change of leadership. And, you know, I mean, what can you say? The statistics are pretty clear that we have to do more. You know, we're, we're not we can do better. For sure. Yeah. I'm not sure that the that it's midwifery leadership that's the problem, but it's an interesting perspective to consider. 
for well, that's, sure. That's yeah. a good that's a good segue into this one last little topic on today's podcast. That was which, my that was my purpose. Which is <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a uh, which is an interesting look at things. I you know you and I may disagree on it, which wouldn't be surprising. <laughs> but I I just want to I want to read to you a little bit about it, and then I'll I'll save my comments till till afterwards and see what you have to think about it first. Mm. The it was another internet article entitled. Um, Penn, which is the University of Pennsylvania, I believe, alums, are working to fund a scholarship for future midwives of color. Sounds like a great idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm summarizing here. It says, historically, midwives were popular among black and immigrant populations in the U.S. As the 20th century progressed, home births became stigmatized, as we all know, that what the, uh, the uh, organized medicine uh, did in the Ameri- AMA and did to... Um, to midwives mm-hmm. and people from communities of color stopped or were kept from going into the field. But midwifery saw a resurgence with the natural birth movement in, at the turn of the millennium. I love that. The turn of the millennium. That's a, that's a, that's a new term. Mm-hmm. And now more than 95% of practicing nurse midwives are white. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, they're trying this, the alumni class of 2017 from Penn's nurse midwife program. So these are CNMs, but it's still the same. Um, are, recomm- are recommending the entire graduating class give back by paying it forward to people of color, and they have a campaign fundraising, a, a, a GoFundMe account, I think, to try to raise money uh, to get scholarships to get women of color into Penn State or University of Pennsylvania um, midwifery program. All very, very noble. Okay, mm-hmm. the um, the um, program chairman uh, is a woman. Last name is Cheney not related to uh, Cheney of Mana fame, different spelling. Um, she, she notes that the disproportion, disproportionately high rates of maternal mortality experienced by black American women, which you just highlighted, um, disparities in healthcare are often compounded by unconscious biases that are embedded in the medical system. Okay, I don't doubt that for a second. Mm-hmm. Here's one that really just, this is the one I want you to think about while we, I finish this little summary here. Quote, research shows that when a provider looks like the patient, there's better outcomes for a variety of different reasons, unquote. All right? Mm-hmm. And she goes on to say, uh, she, they go on to quote a recent midwifery graduate who was also a, a woman of color. She says, growing up, this woman was acutely aware of her mother's fear when interacting with white doctors. Her mother often advised her to admit information when talking to her physician, she said, with the recommendation, say everything is good, don't tell them anything is bad. Um, she says, there's an irrational fear of your children being taken away from you for things your physician would know. It's the fear that pe- of, of people in positions of power, which I... Who said it was irrational, by the way? Did you say irrational? She said irrational fear. Mm-hmm. And the person who said that is a, is a midwife of color, mm-hmm. a graduate of Penn. Mm-hmm. And they're interviewing her. And she said, the same person said, she saw the phenomenon again while in school. She recounted a situation where she was practicing under a white midwife and they were helping a Latina patient decide on a form of birth control. The midwife recommended an IUD and the patient hesitated, worried a doctor would refuse to remove it later if she decided she wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. Quote, the white midwife was confused by that, unquote, said the midwife, stu- or the, um, the midwife grad. But I knew exactly what she was talking about. It's not just the history of forced sterilization, but also just the fear that exists in communities of color surrounding healthcare professionals. 
When people of color are matched with providers of color, the experience can become easier, Nunez says. Oh, that's the person, uh, the midwife grad. She understands the concerns of Latina women and can sense their fears. We need women of color to care for women of color, she said. Midwifery is especially poised to do that because midwives especially care for these women. We owe it to the women who are dying every day to step up our game. Okay. So, thoughts? <laughs> I have a feeling you're going somewhere with that. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we say is uh, there's a midwife for everyone. And I think that um, if, a, if a woman of color doesn't feel comfortable um, being completely forthright or trusting their care, then it's not a good match. But if there's not enough midwives of color available for her to interview and and meet, um, then that makes it very difficult for her. She's and ends up getting, you know, good care, but it wouldn't be as good as if she was with somebody who she felt bonded to. And this is the same with Orthodox Jews and, um, you know, Latina women or women who want women instead of men or, you know, it's like it, it depends on. I get what that. I get that. But, I, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the precedent when the people say this sort of thing. When then she says research shows and I'd like to know what research is. Again, they, they, they don't give an example. They don't give a reference. They don't give anything. No, because everybody likes to hear studies and research shows. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds like a comedy skit when they say, you know, <laughs> researchers say. But a research shows that when a provider looks like the patient, there's a better outcome for a variety of different reasons. Now, I don't know if that's specifically for midwifery care or if that's specifically if that's for all sorts of care. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't that open up a huge can of worms? What's the can of worms that you're saying? Well, if that's the case, then should white women only go to white practitioners? Should men only go to men? Should men only go to white? Should white men only go to white men? Uh, where does it where when you start saying that we need women of color to care for women of color? I think we need them available. Okay. I just wish yeah. that they would not, I, I wish they would qualify their statement mm -hmm. and say that women of color deserve a choice of practitioner mm -hmm. as opposed to saying that it's best or I research shows that. that the outcomes are better because wouldn't that limit the potential clients for a black midwife? You mean that it would only be black? Only black. Yeah. Pregnant women. Yeah, I think I, I think and, and be careful what you wish for is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I understand your critique of the language, but I think the sentiment is. is I agree with yeah. the sentiment too. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I really, I, hear what you're I, I really do. But I, I think what happens is, is when you start to use verbiage that verbiage, not verbiage, <laughs> verbiage that is can be can be interpreted again. Everybody's worried about microaggressions and and all these things on on one side of the thing, but. When you start using verbiage like this, okay, it's, it's going to alienate sensitive people on, the, uh, on who you want on your side. Yeah. I, I think that we have to be very careful as white practitioners in, in speaking for them because I feel like they have a different perspective. They have a different experience in life, and we... We don't. We don't really know. I think we're starting well, see, to feel. I only feel. think. You, I only th see. I wouldn't be able to take care of anybody because none of my patients look like me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a sensitive question. Does uh, that feel threatening? No. I, 
Does no. it? No, I'd be, I could reti- I mean, I I could retire then. I, I think that's what's happening. <laughs> I could go on the lecture circuit. That would be great. To me, it feels Better like hours. what's happening with white males is that I I hear a lot of this conversation pushed. Oh, back. I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to be looking for a job right now. I wouldn't yeah. want to be trying to get in medical. My partner George and I were sitting at lunch the other day with mm-hmm. one of the reps. Oh no, no, it was a physician from um, a fertility physician brought us lunch, and we were sitting around chatting and we were talking about the her training and the number of women that are in. The programs now in these days and we were and we looked at each other and we said george you know we're two you were two you know 60 some year old jewish men and we said george you and i will probably wouldn't get into medical school right now do you think so oh yeah I, i'm pretty certain about it that's interesting i hadn't really yeah we're the wrong that. color and the wrong sex mm-hmm. right and yeah so i i i don't fear it because it's you're just I, waiting for something but i but i will but i will up. tell you that my my stepson's their father is, is Argentinian. So when they applied to university, okay, mm-hmm. they put down that they were Latino. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it helped or not. I, I you know, you, we have no way of knowing that. But the truth is, is that they're as much Latino as I. I know that you're part Latino too. Or well, my kids are. Your kids are right. Yeah. Yeah. Your kids are part Latino. Yeah. That's right. And you know they can use that if they want to, but I'm just saying that you know there's really I hate to see I didn't see any, there's no difference between them and my daughter, mm-hmm. who is not part Latino. And again, when you think of Latinos, you don't really necessarily think of Argentinians, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they are. there's no category on the on the <laughs> slot for Argentinians, so you just check the little box. Anyway, it's. Um, it's about time. Yeah, it's about time. We did uh, We've, uh, John, John, we just woke John up. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, this has been podcast number 125. And again, Bliss, it's really good to talk about these things and put them out there. Yeah. We look forward to comments from people who are listening. Uh, if you want to email me at askdrstew at gmail.com. That's askdrstew, S-T-U, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh we look forward to uh, the upcoming events at the Good Life Academy. And maybe some of you want to join us in Portugal. <laughs> you can find the information at the birthinginstincts.com website. Uh, for Bliss Young, again, this is Dr. Stuart Fishbein uh, saying thank you for listening. Uh, again, to podcast number 125. Bye-bye.